Chapter fourteen of Maria or the Wrongs of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen. As my mind grew calmer, the visions of Italy again returned with their former glow of colouring, and I resolved on quitting the kingdom for a time, in search of the cheerfulness that naturally results from a change of scene, unless we carry the barbed arrow with us and only see what we feel. During the period necessary to prepare for a long absence, I sent a supply to pay my father's debts, and settle my brothers in illegible situations. But my attention was not wholly engrossed by my family, though I do not think it necessary to enumerate the common exertions of humanity. The manner in which my uncle's property was settled prevented me from making the addition to the fortune of my surviving sister that I could have wished. But I had prevailed on him to bequeath her two thousand pounds, and she determined to marry a lover to whom she had been some time attached. Had it not been for this engagement, I should have invited her to accompany me in my tour, and I might have escaped the pit so artfully dug in my path when I was the least aware of danger. I had thought of remaining in England till I weaned my child, but this state of freedom was too peaceful to last, and I had soon reason to wish to hasten my departure. A friend of Mr. Venable's, the same attorney who had accompanied him in several excursions to hunt me from my hiding-places, waited on me to propose a reconciliation. On my refusal, he indirectly advised me to make over to my husband, for husband he would term him, the greater part of my property I had at command, menacing me with continual persecution unless I complied, and that, as a last resort, he would claim the child. I did not, though intimidated by the last insinuation, scrupled to declare that I would not allow him to squander the money left to me for far different purposes, but offer him five hundred pounds if he would sign a bond not to torment me any more. My maternal anxiety made me thus appear to waver from my first determination, and probably suggested to him, or his diabolical agent, the infernal plot which has succeeded but too well. The bond was executed. Still, I was impatient to leave England. Mischief hung in the air when we breathed the same. I wanted seas to divide us, and waters to roll between, till he had forgotten that I had the means of helping him through a new scheme. Disturbed by the late occurrences, I instantly prepared for my departure. My only delay was waiting for a maid-servant, who spoke French fluently, and had been warmly recommended to me. A valet I was advised to hire when I fixed on my place of residence for any time. My God, with what a light heart did I set out for Dover! It was not my country, but my cares that I was leaving behind. My heart seemed to bound with the wheels, or rather appeared the centre on which they twirled. I clasped you to my bosom, exclaiming, And you will be safe, quite safe, when we are on board the packet. Would we were there! I smiled at my idle fears, as the natural effect of continual alarm, and I scarcely owned to myself that I dreaded Mr. Venables's cunning, or was conscious of the horrid delight he would feel at forming stratagem after stratagem to circumvent me. I was already in the snare. I never reached the packet. I never saw thee more. I grow breathless. I have scarcely patience to write down the details. The maid, the plausible woman I had hired, put doubtless some stupefying poison in what I ate or drank the morning I left town. All I know is that she must have quitted the chaise, Shameless wretch! 
and taken from my breast my babe with her. How could a creature in a female form see me caress thee and steal thee from my arms? I must stop, stop to repress a mother's anguish, lest in bitterness of soul I imprecate the wrath of heaven on this tiger who tore my only comfort from me. How long I slept I know not, certainly many hours, for I woke at the close of day in a strange confusion of thought. I was probably roused to recollection by someone thundering at a huge, unwieldy gate. Attempting to ask where I was, my voice died away, and I tried to raise it in vain, as I have done in a dream. I looked for my babe with affright, feared that it had fallen out of my lap, while I had so strangely forgotten her, and, such was the vague intoxication, I can give it no other name, in which I was plunged. I could not recollect when or where I last saw you, but I sighed, as if my heart wanted room to clear my head. The gates opened heavily, and the sullen sound of many locks and bolts drawn back, grated on my very soul, before I was appalled by the creaking of the dismal hinges as they closed after me. The gloomy pile was before me, half in ruins. Some of the aged trees of the avenue were cut down, and left to rot where they fell, and as we approached some mouldering steps, a monstrous dog darted forth to the length of its chain, and barked and growled infernally. The door was opened slowly, and a murderous vision peeped out with a lantern. Hush, he uttered in a threatening tone, and the affrighted animal stole back to his kennel. The door of the chaise flew back, and the stranger put down the lantern, and clasped his dreadful arms around me. It was certainly the effect of the soporific draught, for instead of exerting my strength, I sunk without motion, though not without sense, on his shoulder, my limbs refusing to obey my will. I was carried up the steps into a close-shut hall. A candle flaring in the socket scarcely dispersed the darkness, though it displayed to me the ferocious countenance of the wretch who held me. He mounted a wide staircase. Large figures painted on the walls seemed to start on me, and glaring eyes to meet me at every turn. Entering a long gallery, a dismal shriek made me spring out of my conductor's arms, with I know not what mysterious emotion of terror, but I fell on the floor, unable to sustain myself. A strange-looking female started out of one of the recesses, and observed me with more curiosity than interest. Till sternly bid retire, she flitted back like a shadow. Other faces, strongly marked or distorted, peeped through the half-open doors, and I heard some incoherent sounds. I had no distinct idea where I could be. I looked on all sides, and almost doubted whether I was alive or dead. Thrown on a bed, I immediately sunk into insensibility again, and next day, gradually recovering the use of reason, I began, starting affrighted from the conviction, to discover where I was confined. I insisted on seeing the master of the mansion. I saw him, and perceived that I was buried alive. Such, my child, are the events of thy mother's life to this dreadful moment. Should she ever escape from the fangs of her enemies, she will add the secrets of her prison-house, and... Some lines were here crossed out, and the memoirs broke off abruptly with the names of Jemima and Darnford. End of chapter 14